Good morning, everyone, and good morning to those of you who are watching online today. My name's Ian Crossley. I'm one of the leadership team here, and um, it's a privilege to be able to open God's Word with you. This morning, even before uh, everybody had arrived, several people approached me about maps and with expectation, and I have to disappoint you. There is no map in my slide set today, but... If you have a church Bible in front of you and you open it to the inside of the back cover, you'll see a map, and it has Corinth in that map. Please feel free to use that. (laughs) Also, just an observation, we've tried to uh, be aware of health and safety, particularly with incident last week, and you'll see that the step has been reinstated. I'm a bit concerned that with my increasing age that that step is a bit big to get up and down, so I asked for it to be there just in case. But if you're a person who's coming up on the platform and would prefer two steps rather than one large step, then that's going to be there for you. Well, wasn't it great to kick off our service with those verses from from Psalm uh, 117? And and particularly, I'd like to draw your attention to uh, part of that psalm, for great is his love toward us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. So we've got a reminder of God's great love and also a reminder of the enduring love of God, the eternal love of God. And so if I could have the slides up on the screen. Today, uh, although I think everything Paul writes has an eternal perspective, I think this passage today, more than any other, does that. But before I go to the passage, one thing I'd like to do is to tell you about things I've got wrong in the past. Do you ever come across those things that you've been told about, you accept them at face value, and then sometime later you discover they were completely wrong? So so I remember many years ago hearing somebody say, somebody with some authority saying, people remember 10% of what they hear. Has anybody heard something like that before in their past? Okay. Well, well, as a trainer, uh, I sometimes use this. It's, it's Dale Edgar's cone of experience, and you'll see that 10% isn't correct because it's the second one from the top where it says 20% of what they hear. So, so I corrected myself, and then I did a bit more reading and research and discover that actually it's all wrong. When, 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 when uh, Edgar Dale did this, he set it up as a hypothesis, if you like, that these were the things he felt in order benefited people's learning, but he had no research that quantified the amount. So for all those years, I was giving spouting rubbish. Um, well, not all the time. Not all, everything I was doing was spouting <laughs> rubbish, as you imagine. But, but, but of course, uh, you discover those Uh, problems. And and something happened relatively recently. A couple of weeks ago, I was teaching a group of inexperienced managers at a company in Fairham uh, as part of my business. And part of the course involves suggesting approaches to take for solving problems. Uh, And I had been given this video asking why it's about root Years ago, the stone exterior was deteriorating at the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C., a popular monument in the United States. Repairing the stone or painting over the worn areas was too expensive, so park rangers turned to root cause analysis and started asking why. Why was the stone deteriorating? High-powered sprayers were being used to wash the memorial every two weeks. Why were high-powered washings needed every two weeks? Because of bird droppings. 
Asking why stopped, because it seemed the cause was found. Workers put nets around the building, but they were unsightly, and the birds found ways around them. So it was back to the drawing board, or the five whys. Why are there so many birds? They come to feed on spiders. Why are there so many spiders? They feed on insects at night. Why are there so many insects? They're attracted by lights that shine on the memorial at night. With a new cause found, questions stopped, and a plan was created to reduce the amount of time the memorial spent in the spotlight at night, and it worked. The insects were reduced by 90%, and with the root cause removed, the excessive cleaning was no longer needed. An unexpected benefit was a cost savings realized by using less electricity. This highlights how root cause analysis can involve trial and error, and how the five whys isn't always limited to exactly five questions. Well, that, that's all well and good, except that in doing a bit of research, I discovered that that's a gross simplification, and not entirely accurate story of, of what happened. So once again, uh, material I discovered, can I say that is that video is widely used in, in, in management training. Uh, even there, uh, there's something else. And I'll leave you to do the research if you're interested and find out the, the full story. But, but nevertheless, there is a purpose in that video because asking why is a good question to ask when you're reading scripture. In fact, when you're reading the Bible, it's also good to ask questions that begin with who, what, when, where, and how. And I thought we might try asking a few why questions today. Uh, and in order to do that, I want to start at the end of our passage. Now, Corinth is situated just next to an isthmus that separates most of Greece from the Peloponnese. And it's about four miles wide, and this is the remains of an ancient trackway where boats would be brought to Corinth and then dragged overland for four miles in order, and launched the other side in order to avoid the very long and somewhat dangerous journey around the south of Greece. Well, back in the 19th century, this uh, was superseded in many ways by the Corinth Canal. It's a four-mile-long canal that exists in its place, although most modern ships are too big to go through it. But Corinth was a place that was exposed to all kinds, manners of cultures and influences because sailors would be coming from all kinds of places in order to uh, bring their wares and, and get them traveling across land. And so it's in this multicultural, quite pagan environment in ancient Corinth that Paul is writing, and toward the end of the passage that we looked at today, we see that Paul has an urgent representative role. Paul, he ends this passage with this sense of urgency as he represents Jesus. Now, incidentally, some of you may remember that Paul, of course, is also writing this letter to defend the authority from God he has, that the people might listen to him and what he's saying. And in fact, he's quoting uh, in chapter 6 there uh, from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. So he's identifying his own ministry with that of Isaiah's prophetic calling of Israel back to God. It's a hint for those who are questioning his credentials. But he describes himself as an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Well, we know a little bit about ambassadors. In fact, the BBC News yesterday evening on the website, the Russian uh, ambassador to the UK uh, was quoted 
there. An ambassador is a diplomatic official, the highest rank, and they're sent by a sovereign nation to another nation to represent uh, that uh, nation uh, that they are from. So Andre Kellen, he's been the Russian ambassador to the UK since 19, 2019. But do you know the first Russian chief of embassy arrived in, the U, in England in 1556? So it's not uh, the Russian authorities have changed over the years, but it's quite a long tradition we have here. Yesterday was our anniversary, and we decided to go out and went to Petworth House. And Petworth is full of all kinds of uh, artwork, and one of the pictures that uh, caught my attention was this one. It's Sir Robert Shirley, and he was an adventurer. He served in the early 17th century as the ambassador to the Persian Shah. And you can see from his dress that he adopted a number of Persian customs. But what also happened is that he then started to represent the Persian Shah in the courts of Europe. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine, for example, the British ambassador to Tehran representing Iran at the United Nations? It just wouldn't happen, would it? I wonder quite where his loyalties lay. Well, Paul has no doubt where his loyalties lie. It is as an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And a simple lesson for us is, do we have the same urgency of, as, as Paul with the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ? We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. Earlier this year, we, we had a series on that great gospel verse, John chapter 3, verse 16. And we want to remind ourselves that our heart should be for other people, that they would turn to Jesus Christ, and we have a sense of urgency. It is a priority for us as a church, and it should be a priority for us as individual believers that we have this urgent sense of wanting to reach other people to, that they might be reconciled to God. But Paul also writes to the Corinthians, and as he starts in, in chapter 6, I think the second lesson for us is don't live for yourselves. It was evident that some of the Christians in Corinth wanted to live a position halfway between being faithful to God and comfortable in the world. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those um, videos where people are getting from a jetty into a small boat. Uh, and there are techniques to use when you're doing that, uh, and one of them is to use your legs to keep the two close to each other. But some people you'll see step into the boat, the boat starts moving away, and, and they are straddling the gap between the two, and eventually the boat moves far enough away, there's only one place for them to end up, and that's in the water. And, and that's something of the halfway position that we as Christians can find ourselves in. It's not very comfortable being neither here nor there. We want, Paul is saying, you to be sold out for God. Turn back, um, uh, by, by, by turning back from that wholehearted following as a disciple of Jesus Christ, he was concerned that they had received the grace of God in vain. 
Now, if you visit CBC regularly, you'll often hear about God's grace, his, his rescuing love. And as Paul did, I implore you, don't treat it lightly, but ensure that you wholeheartedly receive it and sign up to be a disciple of Jesus. Why did I start at the end of this passage? Well, let's go back to our, our root cause analysis and ask that question, why did Paul talk about being an ambassador. Well, here it is at the beginning of that little section I've just been going through. He, he expresses it like this. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Now, whenever you see that word therefore, remember to ask the question, what is it therefore? Well, obviously, he's pointing back. He's pointing back to what he's just been writing. And what he's been writing about is his reversal of his view of People. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Becoming a believer in Jesus had caused Paul to see people as much more than people whose life is measured in the joys and sorrows before death. He sees their eternal situation. We're all in need of reconciliation with God, which can only be accomplished by Jesus. A Christian, someone who's come to God and received the forgiveness that is available from Jesus because of his death on our behalf, that person Paul describes as a new creation. You've had a new start. We've got a God who is the God of new beginnings, of new starts. We have a position which is in Christ, used more than once in the New Testament. And it is entirely God's initiative that accomplished it. We're familiar from earlier this year from John, of John, um, three, six, with John chapter 3 and verse 16. Let me turn you to Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, where it says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we read again in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 to 10, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There are lessons for us from this section here. People have eternal consequences. They face the eternal consequences of their response to Jesus while they are alive on earth. As Christians, we value people. We seek to love, to care, and protect them. We've heard something of that as we've listened to the, the account of renew well-being, haven't we? So especially we want to care for those more vulnerable or, or in need. 
But most important is that without them seeing and taking hold of the eternal solution that God provides, the temporary struggles of this life will be insignificant compared to the consequences for eternity of rejecting God's love for them. Let's ensure that we realize that people have an eternal consequence at the end of their lives. Why did Paul say this? You'll see the beginning of this short section begins with the word so. That's a conjunction which refers back to what he's been talking about. Let's have a look. And we see in the section before, in verse 11, there is the ministry of reconciliation. Paul is compelled. He's more than motivated. He, he, he almost feels like he's being pushed from behind. Oh, I, I don't know that he would use the word propelled, but he's compelled. There's something more driving him in this ministry of reconciliation, reconciling people to God by Christ's love, which he's experienced. Have you experienced God's love? Are you overwhelmed by it at times? Does it drive you? Does it compel you in sharing that love to others? If you're not quite there yet, spend time with Jesus. Spend time reading in the Word of God what He's done for you and for me. Get your heart right and filled with that love of God. And also in this section, a brief reminder from the second part of verse 11 to verse 13, that he's writing in defense of his apostleship. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen. And he goes on to say a little bit more there. But there's a lesson for us in this section, and I think that lesson is very simply, we need to soak up God's love so that we are compelled, like Paul was, to appreciate God's love, to recognize the great difference it makes in our own lives, and then to let it urge us to share that love with other people. But once again, root cause analysis. Let's go back to our why. Paul starts this section with a since. And it's since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. And as we get back now to verses 9 and 10, we discover that Paul has a healthy fear of the Lord and of his judgment. Now, I've been in one or two places where churches only talk about the love of God. And I want to talk to you for the moment about the judgment of God, because unless we talk about that, because the Bible does, we're missing out on something of the picture and the responsibility and the consequences that it brings. So Paul says we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home or in the body or away for it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now there is some debate among people who read and study the Bible as to exactly what Paul is referring to here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I would encourage you to read this, Paul makes it clear that we who are Christians will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And it will not be a judgment of punishment because we have had our punishment removed when we recognize that Jesus took our punishment on the cross. Rather, it is an evaluation of our works of faith as once we become Christians. And they're described in two ways. Things that are of little value, he describes them figuratively as wood, hay or stubble, stuff that could be burned up, or of precious metals like gold and silver, which would survive a test of fire. And so as Christians, we are going to one day face God and we're going to give an account for the way we have faithfully lived, for our lives and our motives as we've served him as believers. And it's important for us to bear that in mind. But there's also another school of thought that says, well, Paul is probably being more general when he's referring to judgment, because earlier in this book, he also talks about the judgment that those who have not yet come to Jesus will receive, because they will be facing the issue of being responsible for their own guilt before God, for their own rebellion, for their own ignoring of God. That which is dealt with by Jesus for those of us who've chosen to follow him. Pleasing God we make it our aim to, goal to please him, is, is a theme in the New Testament. Um, if you are taking notes, you can look at this, but you can go back and look at the video online. There are some other references there to the pleasing God you can look up in the New Testament. But as we consider this idea of the judgment seat of Christ, let's remember that a lot of what's Paul writing is about the love of God. And, and so there's an element where we've got the sort of carrot and the stick as Christians. Now, I, I, to be quite honest, if you sort of dangle a carrot in front of me, I'm not going to be particularly motivated. Chocolate cake, maybe. Uh, it might be, uh, you know, for some of us it might be some money, it might be something we want badly. But for Christians, that carrot is the love of God. Paul will never minimize the love of God. But even with that great love, Paul cannot ignore that there is also an accountability for each of us. And we should be aware that with God's great love, there is also the flip side. If you like, another quality of God is his holiness, and there is therefore that uh, judgment that, that we will face. And Paul is using a word that the Corinthians are very familiar with. If you go to ancient Corinth today, you'll see this platform, uh, and it's been labelled, um, this is not an ancient label, this, the platform is ancient, uh, the beamer. And he's using that word, Greek word, as he writes to these people, and it's the word for the judgment seat. 
And so they were familiar with this idea of a high official being up on this platform. And this is the view that you can see when you're up on that platform, uh, looking over the forum there, uh, as somebody proclaiming judgment on, on, on somebody for perhaps for their offences. Now, if you look on the sort of top left of that picture, it's, um, I'm gonna, for those of you in the building, I'm just highlighting it. Just there, just above the horizon there, you can just see the Gulf of Corinth to the north of there. That's the long sort of slot of water that, that flows in from the, um, uh, from the west through to the east to Corinth, where the ships would come in. So there's a lesson for us in this section too about our accountability to God. We will all have to give our account of ourselves to God one day. Believers do not lose their salvation. It's just that they may lose rewards in heaven if they haven't lived for God. Why then is Paul motivated to please God? Well, it's very simply at the beginning of our passage. It's because of the eternal hope and confidence he has from God about his future. He talks about reversing the great swallower. There are some verse references there, but the picture is that the grave, when people are lowered into the grave at the end of their lives, that grave swallows up the body. But there's a reversal going on because Paul is confident as a Christian that his mortality is being swallowed up by real life in God's presence. Death is defeated. And Paul expresses his confidence as we see double here, as he reverses the expression. He says that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Now, we, we believe and we know from Scripture's teaching that we have the presence of God with us, but we are not present with God. And that's what he's meaning here. But he reverses it and says, I say, I'd prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's better, better by far, as he will say in his letter to the Philippians. And so it encourages us to have regular vision checks. Verse 7 is almost like a parenthesis between verses 6 and 8. Now, I have um, uh, one or two eye challenges, and so I go and see Judith Drabble a couple of times a year to get my eyes checked, make sure the pressure's not building up, and, and so on. I get my eyes checked. But this is a reminder to me, and I hope to you, not to forget my faith sight too. It's more important. And just in the, he ends the previous chapter by saying, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We cannot see Jesus. One day we will, but until then, our faith is faith because we haven't seen. And it's a reminder to us that we often get caught up in what we can see, the tangible, 
but let's make sure we keep our sight on Jesus. So the final lesson in this passage for us is the best is yet to come. Paul was a leather worker who made tents to provide for his living. In fact, he made tents when he was first in Corinth, along with Aquila and Priscilla. And so it's very apt, isn't it? The analogy he's using here at the beginning of this section, for we know that if the earthly tent, referring to his body, of course, we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And finally, why does Paul have this confidence? Well, there's a four at the beginning of this whole chapter, isn't there? And in order to find out why, I suggest you go online and listen, watch Helen's talk, Ellen's talk from last week, uh, where you'll see she took us through chapter four. I'm not looking for you to take away six lessons today, but I am praying that God, by his spirit, might prompt you in one or two areas of these where you feel that there's something where your mindset or your conduct or your confidence just needs to be realigned with what Paul is teaching us here. And I'm going to leave those up, and as I pray, I pray that something of what um, has been said today will be from the Scriptures is an encouragement and a challenge, as Guy prayed earlier on, has taught us in some way that we might live more for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this man who'd been through incredible trials in his life of witness and traveling with the gospel of Jesus can address us today. And I pray that where we lack an urgency about sharing the gospel message, you'd give that to us. If we are battling and we're in that halfway point where we're not living fully for you but partly for ourselves, that we would wholeheartedly adopt the discipleship that you require of us. Where we are influenced by our heart or by this world around us, to see people only for their immediate needs, please change our perspectives that we see that people's eternal destiny is of far greater importance and help us to express Christ's love to them in, in genuine and caring ways in order that we might be able to witness to them about their eternal need and God's provision. Help us to soak up your love as we let the scriptures fill our hearts. where we have become sloppy or lacking in faithfulness. Help us to remind, uh, remind us, please, of the balance in our belief that we know of your love, but we must also give account to you one day. And above all, help us to keep in focus that the best is yet to come. Death is not the end. It is merely a beginning. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this man, Paul, who would write this 
all those years ago, not just for the Corinthians, but for us too. Amen.